the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life, Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into history, the great ancient Christian thinkers, uh, primitive Christianity. It is always good to know our past so as to better know who we are and where we are going. And as, as I do each and every Tuesday, for the most part, <laughs> I have John O'Hara with me. So, John, it is great to have you with me another Tuesday. Thank you, Joe. Thanks again. Well, John, we are in St. Augustine, and there is no telling how long we are going to be in St. Augustine. Uh, He ranks up there with the likes, certainly, of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he does because of the volumes, volumes of his writing. So, yeah, we will be in uh, St. Augustine for a while, and we started with St. Augustine last week, and we talked about it a little bit, maybe a footnote, uh, Benedict's relationship with St. Augustine, and so far as... uh, how St. Augustine influenced his theology, his writing. And I I thought what we could do to get us going this evening is talk a little more about that very unique relationship that exists between Benedict's theology and St. Augustine's theology. Uh, Off the top, it is worth noting, um, and I was made to think about this this evening, St. Augustine elected his successor, uh, Heraclius was his name, in Hippo. He was a bishop, right? So he elected uh, his successor as bishop. And so with that, what uh, Augustine had the opportunity to do was to spend his remaining days in intense prayer and intense study of sacred scripture. Not every church father that we've talked about, John, had the opportunity to do that or uh, ultimately was called to do that. Well, certainly St. Augustine did, because as Benedict makes note, he spent those last four years not only in intense prayer and study of sacred scripture, but also finishing up a great number of works that he did not yet complete at that time. So we can credit those last four years of his life with the many classics that we read today. So it's most interesting. And I've got to believe, I've got to believe that those last few years before Augustine's death was not absent from Benedict's mind when he stepped down as Pope, huh? Certainly, uh, he is not electing uh, the next Pope. Yet, uh, here we have a man, Emeritus, Pope Benedict XVI, who is now in intense prayer and study of sacred scripture. And he even talked about that. This will give me more time to contemplate and reflect upon uh, the truth of sacred scripture. Now, of course, we will never know what he's finishing until after he passes away. And as you talked about, John, before we were on, on air here, <laughs> we're not going to know till after Pope Francis. Uh, I'm going to have to take good that. care of my health show to find yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm anxious. I really am anxious because as much of the, just not theological world, but, you know, many Catholics and Christians want to know what is he doing right now. He's writing. Uh, we know he's praying and interceding on behalf of Pope Francis for sure, but he's also writing. And there's something else with that. You know, he is arguably, arguably the greatest Augustinian ever, ever. Uh, what does that mean? When we study Emeritus Benedict XVI, we are studying at the feet of St. Augustine. 
Right? He talked about how many of his works were in dialogue with the theology of St. Augustine. Uh, that's exciting because, of course, uh, the importance of one St. Augustine. Getting off topic a little bit, the first book I ever read by Benedict was his autobiography, uh, Milestones, I think it was called. Yes, it was. Yeah. And he said he liked Augustine as a younger man more mm-hmm. than Aquinas because Aquinas was too lockstep. I didn't find Aquinas to be that. I mean, he's very logical. Mm-hmm. But Augustine does not write the way that uh, Aquinas does. It's more, I don't want to say spread out. It's in a prose that is more likable and understandable, whatever the topic is he's writing about. Um, so yeah, milestones. I remember that in subsequent interviews with him. He ta- he, he's, he's always talking about St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's interesting. He was once asked, if you found yourself on a deserted island, uh, what would you bring with you? <laughs> His response, two books. The first being the Bible, of course, and the second, Confessions. So obviously, Confessions has a very important uh, role for us to better understand St. Augustine. I think if you were to ask Augustine that question, one would be the Bible, because he, half that uh, Confessions is mm. biblical allusions, if not quotations. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, not in quotation marks, but he is thoroughly familiar with that Bible. I was in the Confessions that I read, you could see every page quotations right from Scripture as reference to what he had just said. Well, and it's worth noting again, John, any theology, any discipline, Christology, ecclesiology, anything that you're studying, any doctrine, the soul of that truth is sacred scripture. So any good, you know, quote-unquote theologian is going to be caught up in sacred scripture on every page, because what is sacred scripture? It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So by being inebriated in the Word of God, intoxicated in the Word of God, all of our theology will receive its proper shape and form. And certainly, Confessions uh, was rich in sacred Scripture. Just a, a, a little overview of the Confessions, just to point out some things that were actually mentioned last week. Uh, he was 43 years old and a bishop when he wrote about his conversion when he was 31 years old. So he is writing about events that happened earlier, particularly when he was a teenager and on. And this book is a prayer, a prayer between Augustine and God. And we, the third-party reader, are allowed to get into it. Now, obviously, we have two parts. Books 1 to 9 are his going from his uh, birth, so to speak, particularly his teenage years, up until his conversion. And then the last four books deal with memory, time. He also goes into Bible study. Mm-hmm. Uh, as uh, I mentioned to you before the show, a good essay question for a theology teacher would be, students, what is the connection between the mm-hmm. first nine books and the last four books? And another thing is the confessions. What does he mean by the word confession? Is it like the Catholic confessional where you say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned? Or is this a profession of faith? Is it a combination of the two? What does he mean? I mean, he selected that word. Yeah. What does he yeah. mean by the word confessions? The, the first, as it relates to the first nine books and the next four books. And by books, for clarification for our listening audience, John, by books, we can also say they're chapters. Yes. Huh? So the first nine chapters and the next four, those four chapters, especially memory, come out of him inquiring about faith. He's had this personal encounter with uh, this God who is love. And now, because he is an intellect, because uh, he's a man of rhetoric, He's inquiring. He's inquiring, and, and the first topic is memory. So the unique connection ought to be understood in light of the inquiries that come out of the conversion itself. And uh, 
yeah, we are always to see how one chapter leads to the next, how one book leads to the next. I mean, again, we've talked about this a great deal, John, as it relates to sacred scripture. You have 46 books in the Old Testament and 27 new in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. You always read one book in light of the other. Uh, The 46 books in light of the 27, the 27 in light of the 46. So very important. And as it relates to confessions, this is a profession of faith. Mm-hmm. And I loved, you know, your word prayer as it relates to confessions, because what is prayer? You know, simply defined, prayer is conversation with God. And St. Augustine is looking back. Yes. He's looking back. And as he's looking back, I love that. He's inviting us into his own looking back. And in so doing, he grabs a hold of us and draws us in. This is off topic, but when I was in college, I took a course, an English department course, on autobiography, that being the basis of American literature. Sure. I mean, Huck Finn, et cetera. And of course, we began with Benjamin Franklin. We also went to uh, Malcolm X. Mm. And actually, Mm. that was written by the guy who wrote the TV show Roots. But Malcolm X, and the point was made, this follows Augustine's confessions quite well. I mean, I don't know just if he ever studied him, but it is, I was a terrible sinner, and then... I had this conversion to a religious sort of uh, life, and I I took it up. Well, Benedict has noted that the book Confessions has impacted a great deal of people, Catholic, non-Catholic, Christian, Mm -hmm. non-Christian, because as we noted last week, John, you know, we can all identify with the sinner. Why? Because we're sinners, (laughs) you know, so, and we love to to journey with stories, and certainly that's what St. Augustine uh, provides for us. Yeah. It, could I read a little bit from this? It'll it'll be about of course, 30 seconds. yeah, of okay. course, of course. Now this is where he's uh, his big addiction was sex, yeah. and he wants he wants to become a Catholic. By this time, he knows it's the truth, and he's not interested in his profession of being rich and famous, which is where the whole point of the education his parents gave him. Now he's got a second mistress. This just doesn't end. Okay, so he he reads this. When I was making up my mind to serve the Lord my God, at last, as I had long since purposed. I was the one who wanted to follow that course, and I was the one who wanted not to. Mm. I was the only one involved. I neither wanted it wholeheartedly nor turned from it wholeheartedly. I was at odds with myself and fragmenting myself. The disintegration was occurring without my consent, but what it indicated Mm. was not the presence in me of a mind belonging to some alien nature, but the punishment undergone (laughs) by my own. I think we've all been there, mm. and I really mm-hmm. felt mm. sympathy with that. Mm. And he goes on, I, the footnote describes the word, you know, diabolic, the devil, mm. someone who scatters, who takes, one who divides and scatters. And that really is a, a definition of the, the devil, so to speak, in his consternation over do I or don't I. Yeah, yeah, the devil, diabolos in the Greek, uh, literally translated Uh, to throw, and even more specifically, you know, to throw like a rock in the middle of the road, to scatter. Uh, This is the function of the adversary. Yeah, that interior tension, John. Hey, that's what grabs you when you read this story. Because we've all been there. How did he overcome it? Grace. Exactly. Yeah, grace. And this is why he is known as the doctor of grace, because he gets, again, into grace in confessions because of what he's having to deal with. I also say that there was a certain Christian community involved. St. Paul, grace of his conversion. Uh, Anthony of the desert walks into late into Mass. Here's the gospel about the rich young man, and Anthony gives away all he has. And Okay, that's an example 
that Augustine was aware of right about this time, within a year. And then there was an example of the uh, Victorianus, a rhetoric professor, who became Christian when Julian the Apostate was the emperor. Mm -hmm. And Julian said, if you can't teach rhetoric, if you're going to be a Christian. But Victorianus gave it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there were other examples. And then the prodigal son is also quoted. This is all grace, and I think he's realizing. Mm -hmm. Well, and he goes back to Paul, right? I mean, this is the one figure who stood out to him. I mean, he was the towering figure. He looked at his life and said, yeah, I can identify with this man. This man who was persecuting Christians. This man who was heading up the persecution. And then, of course, as we know and as we've talked about on this radio program, John, he has this dramatic conversion, which Paul himself credits to what? Grace. And out from studying this conversion of Paul, does he come to realize that grace is really a quintessential matter of faith? And so then he reflects into grace. You know, what is grace? And I love the word he uses as he's talking about grace, and we have it in our catechism, favor, favor. Grace is God's favor to us. I mean, you and I, John, we're talking here, and if I say to you, um, John, would you like a favor? You say, yes, of course, and we expect something back, maybe. God doesn't expect as much as he says, here's a gift so as to share in my very life. My favor to you is to actually share in my very life. And what we call this is sanctifying grace. This is the grace, John, that we receive at baptism, uh, the grace of, and virtues of faith, hope, and love, that we actually share in his very life. Uh, this is sanctifying grace, and of course, actual grace. Uh, he defines that as that grace which deals with specific circumstances in our life that we might share in God's own life in each and every moment in our life. No, so that is actual grace, the, the actual moment, the moment right now, uh, October 21st, you know, what, 645 mm-hmm. uh, p.m., right? <laughs> the grace we need to live in God right now, that's actual grace. Grace, an unmerited gift from God. And it's a sanctifying grace, God's life in our soul. And this is why he is known as the doctor of grace, uh, the doctor of grace. And it's interesting, we were talking about Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, Emeritus Benedict Sixteenth earlier, if Augustine is Dr. Grazier, the doctor of grace, then Benedict is Papa Grazier, <laughs> the Pope of grace. He did something uh, for the ecumenical community. You know, he was working with some Protestant head theologians within the joint declaration of justification, the doctrine of justification, and he played a very important role in coming to a consensus on the definition of grace. He was very instrumental in getting the Catholics and Protestants to say together this, by grace alone, in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. Wow. And that really defines what grace is all about. No, grace is something we don't touch per se. We receive it, and we see it in light of faith. And so faith and grace uh, can never be seen as autonomous from each other because they really do uh, go hand in hand, and that was really important for uh, Emeritus Benedict XVI. That being said, John, I think what might help us even advance our understanding on grace is to get inside the Word, 
You know, when, when we talk about grace, okay, we define it as sanctifying, actual. We didn't mention sacramental grace, the grace that comes from the sacraments. But what does the word itself mean? Well, as we've talked about, uh, the word grace is tied to joy. Um, but, but what is the essence of grace? Certainly joy is its fruit, but the essence of it. Uh, let's get inside the word. Uh, the, the root to the root is res, uh, sap, okay? Uh, well, what is sap, we ask? Well, sap, uh, it, it's what contains the water, uh, the nutrients, and even the hormones of the tree that the sap belongs to. In other words, what we are saying is that sap contains the very life-giving properties of the tree itself. And I think I was talking about this with George Wing a couple months ago, and I says, yeah, and not only that, sap, you know, when it crystallizes, it's amber. It protects and it guards. Oh. So uh, sap has all these functions. So when he gives us this thing we call grace, what he's giving us is what is life-giving. And at the same time, what guards and protects us. This is grace. During uh, Book 8, Chapter 8 of the Confessions, he mentions the parable of the prodigal son. What caused a prodigal son, while feeding pigs, to say, mm. I'm going to go back to my father? Mm. Mm. I think that was grace. He didn't have to say it. And he no. had said no for a long time, but he's had enough within him to say, I'm going back. Amen. And that's a great point, John. I, I've been in a couple conversations this past week, and they've talked about their, their experience, and as they were talking about it, they likened it to the prodigal son. Okay, fair enough. But I posed to them a question, and it really draws out what you're saying now. Have you said, if only I was in the presence of my father? I don't know if I have, Joe. Mm. That is a grace moment, what St. John of the Cross calls you know, a fiery dart of love. Uh, and in that moment, we come to realize that it is all grace. It is all God's goodness, and we must be reliant upon that grace. That is why, again, that first beatitude leads the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because when Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what he is saying is, blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. We need to be reliant upon God in that way, the same way our lungs need air. And that's God's grace. You know, that's God's grace. So very important. And yeah, I mean, to bring in the prodigal son, uh, we can never do it enough as it relates to the story of St. Augustine. Uh, being a Christian was a low-status religion in mm. those days, particularly mm. if you were a rhetoric professor. And he had an example of Victorianus who gave up being a rhetoric professor. And Augustine knew he would be losing status. Mm. And all of this, I mean, this is very typical of today. Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind mm -hmm. of a university professor is going to go and say, hey, guys, I just mm -hmm. joined the mm -hmm. Presbyterian or Catholic Church, and is, you think he's going to be clapped in the mm -hmm. faculty room? Mm -hmm. Well, what went on then is going mm -hmm. on now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially today at the university. I mean, one of the things that is all but being condemned is any kind of profession of faith in the one true God. And unfortunately, that's even happening in some Christian universities. We've, we've gotten so far from our roots that we've just lost our sense of, you know, why we study what we study. We do need the likes of a St. Augustine to rediscover the importance of uh, why we get into a classroom and we talk about philosophy, theology, 
uh, medicine law, whatever it may be. Because for St. Augustine, it was always about truth. You know, one of the great contributions that St. Augustine left was faith and reason. Fides et ratio, faith and reason. And as he would like to talk about it, faith and reason are the two forces that lead us to knowledge. So with faith, he says, I believe to better understand. With reason, he says, I understand to better believe. One forming and informing the other. But it was always pointing towards knowledge of something. No, someone. And that someone was the incarnation of truth. Yes, faith and reason are distinct disciplines, but they're not to be seen as autonomous from each other. They illuminate uh, yes. each other, right? And so in light of that, St. Augustine would say to every professor today, rekindle that sense of faith and reason. Rekindle that sense that, yes, even faith can be a way of knowing as well as as reason. You know, we gave the example last week, uh, the analogy of the cookie, right? Yeah. You look at a cookie and you can acquire knowledge of that cookie by looking at it, right? And then you describe what you see. Maybe it's rough around the edges, it's, it's brown, it has chocolate chips, so you just describe that. You're describing what you see. But that's not the essence of the cookie. To be able to describe the essence of the cookie, you have to bite into the cookie. That's the essence. And then you're going to give the person next to you a different description of the cookie. Okay, so there's the objective and subjective. Okay, there's the external and the internal. There's what's on the outside and then what's on the inside. And what's on the inside is that we can say more personal encounter, John. And so when you put the analogy within the context of faith and reason, the essence of knowledge and the essence of truth is to discover and find God inside of us, right? He's there. And so we need to go there and enter into a more personal relationship with God. And this is what happens to St. Augustine, right? It's really out from that more personal encounter with God, where he discovered that God was always there, that he said this, maybe his most famous quote, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new, Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried aloud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Amen. <laughs> that is a man who was searching for God. And where did he find God? What did he just say, John? not just in the external world, but in the world no one can see. We need to listen to that still, quiet voice. And in so doing, discover the essence of God that lives within us, that grace that we were talking about. And so, John, as we wrap up our time together for this evening, uh, let us close with some thoughts from Benedict XVI, uh, particular to uh, this word encounter, how we encounter God 
in these modes of faith and reason. Uh, Bennett says this, A man who is distant from God is also distant from himself, alienated from himself, and can only find himself by encountering God. In this way, he will come back to himself, to his true self, to his true identity. Let us close in a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.